Actually, actually, I'm from Warren now, but that's close enough. Hi, everybody. My name's Denny, and I'm an alcoholic. I miss that. Yeah. I get it chills. I used to do that all the time, and all the young people function, and went to Cleveland one time and did it, and they got pissed, and take themselves too serious up there on the lake, I think, sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I liked it. I went to California one time, walked into a, one of the meeting clubs they have out there. They, they buy these houses and have meetings in them around the clock, and I walked in there, and there's a sign over the door that says, we don't give a damn how they do it in Cleveland. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm real uncomfortable right now, and it has nothing to do with being here and being in front of you and being in Cincinnati and being in Cincinnati. It has to do with something being in this damn shirt. It's two sizes too small that I didn't know until I got here. It fit in 89. I don't know. I bought this suit and this shirt and this Italian silk tie with matching hanky on, you know. And I also bought blue shoes, but I didn't wear them. Uh, they were for a lead I did in 89. and uh, It was kind of a special thing. And I was mad because the suit was too big. And now it's like... Uh, Okay. <laughs> Everybody's been telling me I'm putting on weight. I don't see it. <laughs> the suit's shrinking. <laughs> I shouldn't have thrown that shirt in a dryer. I should have let it drip dry. <laughs> oh. Are we having fun yet? Yeah. I love that, that quote out of the big book. I know what you're thinking. You know, the, <laughs> the sad part of that is I've been sober for a long time and I pretty well know. <laughs> Depending on where you're at in recovery, I pretty well know what you're thinking. <laughs> Nothing new. Nothing new. Yeah. I uh, <laughs> I have fun doing this. And some of you will, some of you won't. And if I don't piss anybody off, I haven't said anything worth saying. A friend of mine starts his leads with it. He says, I'm here to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Another guy from up around my area, he's neat. You probably heard him, and, and and he says something like, you know, he said, I get my recovery from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I suggest you do too. It's important that you have a sponsor, and if you have a sponsor, he needs to get his recovery from that book too. And if he doesn't, fire your sponsor and get one that does. And I believe that. There is no individual program for individual people. There are 12 steps that is the program of recovery of Alcoholics Anonymous, period. It says so in that book. Those, bo those steps are not individually suggested. Those steps are suggested as a program. And you don't have to do them. You can stay sober any way you want to. Any way you find comfortable staying sober is fine. But please. If you're not staying sober, by those steps, the way you find them in that book, don't tell people you're staying sober through the AA program because you're not. And AA has a bad name today because of people who don't drink and go to meetings and tell people they stay sober through the AA program. Because of people who refuse to work the steps, who struggle throughout their entire life being sober and tell people they stay sober through the AA program. People who crawl out of the ball and crawl into meetings and hide here for the rest of their life and tell people they stay sober in the AA program. All of these things work. If you want to stay sober, I'm going to give you a message tonight that is a secret that's kept in AA, and, and I irritate a lot of old-timers when I do this, 
Because I tell a secret openly and it pisses them off because they like to have these secrets to themselves. It gives them that sense of control and power that we miss when we give up the alcohol. And the big secret about staying sober is don't drink. <laughs> and don't shoot it. You can do that. but you know, I know a guy used to do that. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I wanted the slow torture way, you know. <laughs> pour it in, pee it out, pour it in. <laughs> Takes longer than the needle. You, you gotta be careful with the needle. If you're gonna shoot alcohol with a needle, don't hit a vein. I mean, it's boom, instant death. One of the few ways you can OD an alcohol, but it works if you want to try that. Uh, I have nothing to offer you, except that maybe you might be new to you, in the way of drinking. There's absolutely nothing I can share with you in the way of drinking that's going to encourage any of you to be here tonight, to stay here and come back next year. I can entertain you with my drinking, but I doubt that there's anyone in this room that can't entertain the rest of us with their drinking. What I like to do is share with you some of my experience, strength, and hope and recovery that you may recover from alcoholism. I think that if you're in this room tonight and you're not sure whether you're not uh, an alcoholic, there are a lot of people in this room that are willing to sit down with you one-on-one -on -one after this meeting's over and sometime this weekend and discuss that with you. What I want to do tonight is share with you that experience, strength, and hope of recovery and maybe, maybe give you some hope because that's what we need. We don't need to know how to drink. We don't need to be entertained, although I, we always are entertained. We are entertained by the sickest things. <laughs> we'll have at anything. Uh, when I, uh, when I first got sober, I played the game. I played the same game I played when I drank. And the game that I played when I drank, oh, I gotta tell you something first. <laughs> See the hair? The beard? When I got sober, I had hair down below my ass, and that's where it's going again. And the beard was out to here, and that's where it's going again. And I was at a meeting, and I'd been sober for a while, at least three or four weeks. <laughs> and somebody came up to me, and they said, you know, young man, that's 30 years old, I like that guy right away. He said, you know, young man, you can't stay sober if you're like that. You're going to have to shave and get a haircut. He scared me. But, you know. Three weeks sober, I'll show you. Defiance. <laughs> I just let my hair go, and I let that beard go. Then about a year sober, I bought a convertible. If you've ever driven around in a convertible with long hair down to here, you know there are not enough rubber bands, tie-downs, paper clips, uh, hairpins, you name it, hats, bandanas. You can't do enough to keep that hair tied down. There's always one that gets out, and guess where it goes? Right in your eyelash. Right in your eyelash. And then you go like this, and you know what it does? That's stuff. when you get to the split end part, it cuts. And I got all these little blood clots on the end of my eyeball, eyelashes, eyebrows, and people think I'm doing acid in my eyebrows, you know. But I would not. I would not get my hair cut. They ain't telling me i got to get my hair cut. And so finally I give in. Not to the, not to them but to the, the convertible. And I got my hair cut. And I went to every meeting in the Warren Youngstown area and stood up and announced why I got my hair cut, because of my convertible, not because you got to do it to stay sober. So, Defiance. Defiance. But for those of you who may be newly sober, who have long hair and maybe a beard, other than women, which, you know, 
you can have long or short, and it doesn't seem to make a difference to anybody, but when we show up with long hair, all of a sudden, we're going to get drunk. It's not true. Long hair did not make, will not make you drunk. Now, Samson, it made him strong, but it never got him drunk, you know. Uh, and I'm certainly smoking, it won't get you high. If it catches on fire, it just stinks like oh, terrible. But I, I retired. I love it. I retired two years ago. <laughs> and, and I love it. And, and I, it dawned on me, there's no longer any need to cut my hair or shave my beard. So I quit. And when someone asked me, why are you letting your hair grow or why are you letting your beard grow? I said, well, I'm not. I, I mean, it just happens. What I did was quit shaving, quit getting haircuts. It does it all by itself. Haven't you noticed? That's one of the things about me and my recovery that's still there. That perverse little streak that says agitate them, irritate them, get to them. And people are easy. You know, people are easy. Just let your hair grow. You don't have to do nothing. Just let it happen. And there will be people who will be irritated at you. Another thing that irritates people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and something probably more than anything else, and that's the truth. And the truth of the matter is that Alcoholics Anonymous, the program, is so simple that it's scary when you first start it. It is not complicated, it is not hard, and if you're working to stay sober, you're doing something wrong. It says so in the book. The, uh, the daily reflection yesterday or day before was about the simplicity and ease of this program. The one this morning was about blame. Not only don't we blame others for what's going on in our life, we don't blame ourselves for what happened. We accept responsibility for what we did in the sense that we're not going to do it again. But to blame, to punish yourself, to beat yourself, don't we do enough of that before we get here? You ever sit drunk and cry about the the stupid things you've done? About the people you've hurt? And don't you always hurt the people that love you? And then you cry some more. And then you get sober and you feel guilty, not because you hurt someone, but because you cried. We did enough of that stuff. We heard enough before we get here. We don't need to hurt anymore. You know how to know if your program's working? If you can look into your past and see that in some way today's behavior is better than it was in the past, your program's working. Now, if you're looking for shortcomings, if you're looking for faults, if you're looking for errors, if you're looking for mistakes, you're going to find them and you'll bury yourself in them. Certainly we can't deny them and we can't avoid them. But that's not what we look at. Look at our progress. Look at our growth. And we need to do it for ourselves. People will tell you. They'll pat you on the back and encourage you. But unless you see it for yourself, it's not real. If you don't believe you're recovering, I can pat you on the back and tell you all the good things I want to about you. You're not going to believe it. And eventually you'll think, how can I be such a phony with these people? If you're looking at the bad things and they're looking at the good things, you're going to think you're a phony. And you're going to drink. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a phony. And I didn't get honest overnight. I didn't quit being a phony. See, one of the things it tells us in that book, powerlessness, that is our dilemma. Look up dilemma in the dictionary. A problem with two solutions, neither of which seem possible, thus stuck on the horns of a dilemma. Can't drink, can't not drink. Can't party, can't not party. How am I going to live if I don't do this? Or how am I going to live if I keep doing this? And one of the dilemmas is this powerlessness. 
I can't make it. For some reason, I don't even understand why, but I quit drinking and I, and I go nuts. Then I start drinking and I go nuts. And it's this power thing. So when I put down the alcohol, I put down my power. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't have awareness of, oh, power go away. No. I beat myself pretty good before I came here. You know, I didn't just show up on Alcoholics Anonymous doorstep and say, hey, uh, I think I've had enough and I'm ready to quit and change and be a nice guy. No, it didn't happen that way. So you were a last resort. Doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, preachers, rabbis, priests, you name it, I would go and I would talk until they mentioned drinking. You know, in the book it tells us we're not always honest with our psychologists, the people that want to help us. We're not always honest with them. But I want to tell you something about them. You know who they are, don't you? They are in charge of it. They have a friend who leads for 45 minutes, and that's all he talks about is they and it. Anyhow. But I, I pulled out, I went to this mental health center in Warnahile, and I, I got this, I pulled up behind this building, and, and I had a bottle of jug wine. For those of you who have never seen it, it's a little brown jug full of wine. And I had a quart, and I emptied it. And I looked, and there's this guy sitting in the window looking at me. And I go in for my appointment to see a psychiatrist, and guess who it is? The guy who's watching me through the window. So we go on, and he starts asking me questions. He says, do you drink? I said, not any more than anyone else. He goes right on. Wait a minute. I almost laughed at him. Why would you even ask me a question? Like, you saw what I did in my car. Not only are we not honest with them, they're not honest with us neither. In many, many cases. And I don't want to put down help outside of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I do want to tell you this. There's a guy by the name of Joseph Persh who is a psychiatrist. And, and he said, he, he refuses to take any addicted person, alcoholic or drug addict, for treatment until they have been sober and active in a 12-step program for one year, and when they come for the first appointment, they must bring their sponsor. And only when he is satisfied that he they have adequately tried the 12-step program will he then take them as a patient. He said, because to try to counsel someone, an alcoholic, who has made no attempt at the 12-step process is a waste of time and money. He says, I have the time if you have the money. I think a lot of them have that attitude. But for many of us, we need that kind of thing. And I don't want them to play that. When I, I, I came into uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and I put that thing down, and, and I'm in detox. See, I catch on quick. Oh, I catch on quick. I learn slow, but I catch on real quick. And while I'm still in detox, I, I catch on quick. See, that when you have seniority in this thing, and I'm, I know about seniority because I was active in the UAW and United Auto Workers where I worked. So I know about seniority. It's important. It rules. And it did in AA too. I learned real quick that if I have more time in you, I can say anything to you and you have no right to criticize or say anything back to me. You have to listen and take it. And see, I also learned real quickly that the advantage of having time in Alcoholics Anonymous is you get to abuse other people. Shut up and sit down. Take the cotton out of your mouth, out of your ears, and put it in your mouth. You ain't been sober long enough to be dry behind the ears. That's the hell you're telling me for, staff. 
I'll tell you when you've been sober long enough to leave. Huh. I loved it. <laughs> so out of the clinic I came, and I got real quiet about how much time I had sober until I heard someone tell me he had less time than I did. And then, I didn't have to tell him how much time I had sober, because I knew I had more time than him, and I could take advantage of it. And if he questioned me, I'd just look down my nose at him and say, hey, I've been sober two days longer than you have. I mean, seniority rules, right? And when you're initially sober, I mean, two days is a long time, right? So I began to do what I saw other people do. I began to play God in other people's lives. I would tell you what meetings to go to. I would tell you what people to socialize with. I would tell you where you could go and socialize and where you couldn't. I could. I would tell you when to take a step and when not to. I would tell you what you could say and what you couldn't, what you could read and what you couldn't, what movies you could watch and what you couldn't, what time you to get up, what time to go to bed, and anything else I could tell you to get away with. Because it gave me power. Powerlessness, that is our dilemma. And I put alcohol down because that was my source of power, and I come here and I find power, and I can intimidate you. I've been sober 21 years. Now, if that impresses you, you best take a look at your program, because I question you if you're impressed by my time in sobriety. Now, if it gives you hope, that's fine. Now, I'm impressed to know him about 21 years sobriety. I get chills when I think about it, because it's mine. But it shouldn't impress you. It shouldn't intimidate you. Because let me tell you something that I have discovered. There are people in Alcoholics Anonymous who have more time sober than I do who have never worked the steps. That when you quote out of the big book, they tell you you don't know what you're talking about. When you tell them it's from the big book, they say something like, well, that damn book wasn't written when this thing started. Total ignorance. Of course it wasn't. That is what that book is. It's how it got started and what makes it work. Written the history of those first few years. That's what that big book is. It's so we can't screw it up. It's so I can't stand and say, I got a better idea than what they did and I'll tell you and impress you and I'll control your life and play God in your life and stay sober that way. That's fine, except one thing. You know what happens when I'm playing God in your life? What happens when you find a real one? Where's that leave me? Out of a job. So, <laughs> So you know what I gotta do? I gotta constantly keep new people around and do everything I can to keep them from making and establishing any kind of a contact or relationship with a power greater than me. Because the minute they become aware that I am not that higher power, they move on. I, I, I had several examples in early sobriety. This one guy, now he never walked, I liked him for one reason. He always asked the questions I was afraid to. I didn't want to ask the question because I didn't want to think anybody, tell anything, have anybody think I didn't know everything. So you couldn't ask a question, but you'd sit there and you know pretty soon, he, this guy never walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in his life. He stomped. You know, up the stairs, down the stairs, down the hall, you could hear him coming. <laughs> and he'd walk in the meeting and he'd say something. He's always uptight. And right away, you know, this guy come in two days after I did. Three weeks sober, and this guy's talking about his four steps. I knew he was in trouble because I heard. 
you got to be sober at least a year and do that fourth step. Well, the next week he come back and he's doing his fifth. What the? I knew he was in trouble. He's going to get drunk. He won't do what he's told. His wife had left him. He had been fired. He got his job back. His wife came back. They had been married 15 years trying to have a kid. Never had one. Two weeks after, or two months after, two weeks after, two months after they're back together, she's pregnant. And I think, boy, God's really setting this one up for a fall. I mean, they're going to pull the rug and everything's going to help this stuff. And this kid just kept on going. There's this one girl, I used to go to this discussion, and I literally would throw the big book at people. Read this damn thing! She asked me one night, you know what I found? I found out, ten years later, after this happened, that she was hitting on me. She wanted, she wanted to go out with me. She wanted to take me home with me. She said, Denny, you want to go dancing with us? Uh-huh. I'm too much in charge to pay any attention to personal relationships. And I looked at her and I said, where are you going? She said, we're going dancing. I said, where the hell are you going dancing? There's no way they dance tonight. So we're going up the bowling alley. You can't go there. They've got a bar there. She said, but Danny, we're a bunch of us going. I said, yeah, you're all get drunk. Read this damn thing and throw the book at her. And you know, she, she always cried. I, she, I didn't have to hit her with a book. She'd cry without hitting her. Next week, this girl brought that book back, and in chapter 7, which is the information those of us who allegedly are carrying a message need to know, in other, in other words, to carry the message to the alcoholic, the new man, and she highlighted in there, where it talks about facing situations daily, where there is alcohol, that any program part of which is avoidance of alcohol, is doomed to fail. Now, don't get mad at me. It's in the book. I didn't write the damn thing. I just read it. It says if we can't deal with alcohol, there's something wrong with our spiritual condition. We still have an alcoholic mind. <laughs> now, see, this is years sober that I'm talking about. And I would like to be able to tell you that when she confronted me with that, I said to her, yes, you're right. I've been wrong. I'm a phony, and I've lied to you all these years. I don't want to change my way. But you know that alcoholic guilt, that feeling deep inside when you know you've been busted, when you, when you know you're caught, and do you know how we deal with it when we're drinking and when we're without a program? I grabbed the book from her, slammed it closed, and said, Listen, when you've been sober as long as I have, then you tell me what the hell this book says. Until then, I suggest you just shut up your mouth and sit down and listen. I have more time than that. Now, I want to tell you something else, too. These things are not original. I did not dream these things up. I saw these things done in AA by people who came before me. I catch on quick, I learn slow, and I caught on. That's the way to maintain the power and control. I did not learn for a few more years that is not the way to recover. But that was the beginning. That was the exposure of my phoniness. 
Others had tried to tell me that in subtle ways and it didn't work. She confronted me. You know what else she did? She went somewhere else to a meeting. She got she quit taking my abuse. And she went to college and got a degree and she's an engineer and owned her own house and several other houses. And I thought, boy, God's setting this one up too, you know. Wouldn't learn. Seven and a half, eight years sober. Not drinking and going to meetings. Before I consciously, actively began to pursue a program of recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, it doesn't have to take that long. Do you want to know when it's time to take the steps? The big book tells you precisely, exactly, what time to do it. And you've heard it read over and over and over again in Alcoholics Anonymous. And for most of you who are new in this fellowship, you have no idea what I'm talking about. It says, if you have decided you want what we have, then, right then, you're ready to take certain steps. There are 12 of them. 12 of them. You do not have to be sober. Works better. (laughs) But the big book also says in the introduction to chapter 2, 50% of us get sober on the first attempt, of those of us who work this program, by the way, not those who come to AA. 50% of us get sober on the first attempt. Another 25% get sober if they continue. And even the reigning 25% who continue with AA show improvement. It's not a good way to live. <laughs> a man sober in alcohol, well, he was an alcoholic in 1947 to play cards. He thought that's what it was. He would show up drunk at the, at the clubhouses in, in Akron. And they always played cards, and he would play cards. Then in the morning, he'd leave and go get drunk. 1947, he came around Alcoholics Anonymous. The longest period of time he had sober was three months. And he was in a meeting one night, and he was drinking. And I spoke, and I talked about recovery, and I talked about the steps, and that book, and how it's a direct connection. And he talked to me after the meeting. And he said, I'd like to talk to you again sometime. Can I have your phone number? And the man called me sober. I want to let you know something when I talk like this. It's not about me. It's about the message. And when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. And if I hadn't have been there, it would have been someone else. But he came to my apartment. That, well, I was living in an apartment that time when we went through those steps. And he recently died and he died sober. Seven and a half years sober. The message works if you're ready for it. And that's something else I want to impress upon you. I think it is my responsibility when I work with someone who comes to me to tell me that they want some guidance in Alcoholics Anonymous. I need to make absolutely sure that that's their decision. In chapter 7, it tells us over and over again that the decision must be a personal one. That it's not, not, not to be forced by family, friends, relatives, employer, or jail. Let them force us to the meetings. I don't care. Anybody's welcome at our meetings as long as they're open. Fine. I have no problem with that. I encourage that. 
never know when a seed's going to get planted. But the decision to do the steps or not do the steps is personal. And you do it when you decide to do it. Because it's as if you have decided. You want what we have. And you're willing to go to certain steps. With any length. Then you're ready to take those steps. It has nothing to do with Denny Lawrence. It has nothing to do with home group. It has nothing to do with sponsor. It has nothing to do with comp care or Hazleton or any other treatment center or judge or an employer or parent or child or spouse. That's to do with you. And I'll tell you something else I do with people who come to me, and if they're honest with me, tell them why I'm not sure I want to do this. I said, fine, then just hang out at the meeting. If any problems, call me. If you ever change your mind, let me know. You know what I want? I want to make it just as easy for you to stay here and recover, and I just want to make it just as easy for you to leave, to find out for sure. I don't want you here ten years later struggling, am I or am I not an alcoholic? And going out and having to deal with the guilt I've been here 10 years and going out to find, yeah, well, I really am. No first. No first. I work with a lot of young people. I sponsor people who got, were born long after I got sober. <laughs> I sponsored this one kid. Born 21 days after I got sober. And I sponsored him. I still sponsor him. Only he drinks. And he's not an alcoholic. But his father was an alcoholic. And his mother was an alcoholic. And at 14 years of age, he came home drunk. And they threw him in treatment. And in order to live in that family, you had to be an alcoholic. Him, his twin sister, and his older sister. All alcoholics. So they say. He drinks successfully. Now, he certainly needs the principles of the 12-step program. But as applied now and on, not as AA. I encourage young people who are here, if your life situation is difficult, if you doubt whether or not you're alcoholic, good. Go ahead and doubt it. But don't put yourself in jeopardy. If you're living in a situation where you have to be sober in order to maintain that residence, remember, food, clothing, and shelter come first. When you're old enough to provide that for yourself and be on your own, and you still have questions, get them answered. Get them answered. You're always welcome here. If any of you should happen to go back drinking again and you come back to Alcoholics Anonymous and someone says, I told you so, look them in the face and say, what you told me was bullshit. Because a member of Alcoholics Anonymous who has recovery through the 12-step program will not do that to you. It's welcome back. Good to see you. I'm available to you. No shame. No guilt. No punishment. No, I told you so. No, you should have. Don't should on me. Oh, I hate that. I was I was full of frustration. Well, in 1988, I went on this vacation, and and I went I, I, 10,000. I drove 140 miles short of 10,000 miles. I started at my home in Youngstown. At that time, I was living in Youngstown, and I drove from there to Springfield, to to Dayton, to St. Louis, to Lawton, Oklahoma to Brookfield, uh, Colorado, uh, to Reno, Nevada, to Lake Tahoe, to Sacramento, to San Francisco, to Long Beach, to Vegas, to uh, Daytona Beach, Florida, Palm Beach, Florida, back to Dayton, up to Pittsburgh, up to uh, the lake, up on the lake, uh, 
Painesville, and then back home. Seven weeks. I loved it. I have no idea why I was talking about that, but I, cause I get caught up. I was on that trip again. I went away. <laughs> oh, you, I'll tell you something. Interstate 76 from Youngstown to Akron. I, I got on Interstate 76, and before I got to Akron, my tape player radio went out. No music, no nothing the rest of the trip. Most of it, except from Dayton to, to, to St. Louis by myself. Now, I want to tell you something. When you spend that much time of your long, uh, uh, alone by yourself with no distractions, you're either real comfortable with yourself or real crazy. <laughs> and it depends on who you ask, what opinion you get. Anyhow, 1988, I was something, I started to talk about that for a reason, but I got caught up in the trip when I was telling you about it. What a spiritual experience that was. Oh, I know! Should! <laughs> See, they come back. I'm in, I'm in, <laughs> we're, in, we're in, we're in Los Angeles. And, and, and we went to a club. And boy and I, I was just, I had been uptight since I left and I couldn't figure out what was, I kept looking, trying to figure out what's going on. Why am I so uptight? Walk into this club in Los Angeles, they got all these pins. And one of the pins there is from Al-Anon. It says, don't shoot on me. And immediately I knew what was bugging me. The trip itself is a miracle. You know what, you talk about miracles, the, 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 uh, well, I'm gonna finish this one. We'll go back to the miracle. I had forty-five hundred dollars to start this trip with, and somebody said, "Oh, you shouldn't carry that kind of cash. Oh, you should get traveler's checks. Oh, you should. I'll show you." I put two thousand in this pocket and twenty-five hundred in this pocket, and off I went on my trip. And I showed them. But it was this thing, what, what I became aware of when that happened to me and leaving on that trip, that I was allowing people to shoot on me. Allowing people to shoot on me. I was still listening to people tell me what to do. Not listening in here. And there was conflict between what's here and what's out here. I would follow what's out here. I didn't want to irritate people. Can you imagine that? Me not want to irritate people. <laughs> I bought that thing, don't shoot on me. And that defiant attitude towards that money left. I didn't buy traveler's checks. I don't want to mess with them. I ain't worried about it. It's money. If it goes, it goes. If somebody takes it, they take it. Big deal. I planned this trip initially. I was going to drive out to Long Beach, California. A friend of mine was out there. And that's all I was going to do. Go to Long Beach and come back. And I figured three days out, three days back, three days there, I can be back in about nine days. I'll just take a week off work. Well, then then this guy called me from Lawton that I sponsored. I sponsored this guy in, in Long Beach. And then Lawton, Oklahoma, he called me. And we were talking. I said, well, why don't I stop out? He was having some trouble. Why don't I stop? I'm going to California. I'll stop on the way. And then Dayton called me. They were they were having a Ohio Young People's Conference that, that year, and they were having a fundraiser. And if you want a good tape of mine, that's a good one. I'll tell you. When I, when I started to speak, they were all on stage, a big circle behind me in the stage. And I started to talk, and they just all got up and left. 
And right, and, and you know, in a tape, this doesn't make any sense at all. But in a, I said, look, I don't care what they say, I didn't fart. Wrap <laughs> <laughs> house up. But it's good for other reasons too. I like, I just, I like that too. I just like that too. So I, so I stopped down there and I figured, well, I got relatives in Springfield, I'll stop there. And then one of the guys that live in, in, in Dayton, the kid that lived in St. Louis, he used to live in Dayton, and they wanted to stop and see him. Well, he thought St. Louis was on the way, so I figured we'll plan that in there. And then I find out one of the girls that I, that, that I, I home that I'm friends with was moving to, to, Oklahoma, to Colorado, Brookfield, Colorado, which is outside of Boulder, I think. And I figured, well, they're having a going away party for her on Friday, and I'm leaving on Thursday. I'll just stop there on the way through and surprise her. She'll blow her mind because she didn't even know I was going. And then I said, well, I'm going up through Boulder. I might as well, I want to catch Reno. I've never seen Reno. I want to see, and Tahoe. I really want to see Tahoe. And then I figured, well, I'll go down to, to Long Beach. Then this kid called me from, he used to live in Cleveland. He's living in Sacramento and I sponsor him. And so I said, well, we'll take him Sacramento. And then, a friend called me from San Francisco, and I said, well, we'll take him there, too. Then this kid called me whose mother's in the program, and I hadn't seen him for a long time, and he was just kind of homesick, and he's living in, in Daytona Beach, and he called me, and I said, what the hell, why not? <laughs> so I ended up taking seven weeks off of work through scheming and scamming and lying is how I did it. But my, you know, I'm getting ready to take this trip, and my van breaks down. I got a van, and it broke down. It just wouldn't run. Figure, well, get it fixed. I don't want to make all this trip, and I got like $600, see. So I take the van to get it fixed, and it costs me $460. And you know what? I saw a sign the other day. Faith is something that says, I'll give before I get. Faith is something that you assume and just act as if. And I knew this trip was going to happen. You ever get that feeling? You just know? And I just went about the business trying to get my van fixed. The place that, that attempted to fix it, that was trying to fix the van for me, really goofed it up. And I'm going to leave on Thursday. On Tuesday, I went to pick up the van, and it's still not running right. And I told them, I said, look, I'm leaving on a trip tomorrow. Now, I'm either taking this van or one of yours. This trip's been planned for a long time, and I'm not going to cancel it. You have a choice. And I said, if you don't want don't want it that way, if you don't want me to take yours or mine, then I'll rent one somehow, and when I get back, see you in court. And they just kind of got irritated, and I left. And Wednesday, when I got off work, I went home, and in the mail was a check for $4,500 from an insurance policy that I didn't even know I had. Went down to get the van. They apologized to me. Gave me 260 of my original $460 back. And gave me a card and told me if I had any trouble with the van on my trip, just present this card. They could contact them through that card, through the phone number on that card, and they would see to it that it was taken care of as long as it was connected to what they were working on. And off I went. Miracles? I'll tell you some more about miracles. Very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was active even when I wasn't working the program, doing a lot of things, running a lot of places, but that was all for show. That was all to get your attention or acceptance, and I loved that. 
But then when I started working a program, I started to commit myself to some things. You know, I don't believe that there is any recovery without sacrifice. I'm talking about personal sacrifice. I'm telling when you want to do something, and there's something that, that needs to be done or can be done for AA, you choose to do what needs to be or can be done for AA instead of what you want to do for yourself. And that's recovery. And, and uh, trust me, the payoff is immense. And I had, I had uh, accepted to lead at a halfway house, which is a Saturday meeting, Saturday morning. And uh, so I, I went, uh, I had tickets, free tickets to a Boom Boom Mancini fight. Boom Boom's from the area up there when he was boxing. And they were having it at this high school, which was close to my house. And I had t- ringside tickets offered free. And I turned them down. And I led that meeting at that halfway house in the, uh, that morning. And then I'm leaving. And I'm on my way back to my apartment because the fight had started. And I knew that by the time I got to Warren from Youngstown, the fight would be over, even if it went the full distance. So I'm feeling sorry for myself, you know, poor me. I, and I do all these things and I don't get no recognition. Yeah. Really committed to recovery. And, uh, but I was. And you know, that's the truth of it. You're gonna feel like that at times. You're gonna have those kind of attitudes at a time. Doesn't mean you're not recovering. It means you're human. And so I go back to my apartment and I get this big screen TV. And no sense of turning the damn thing on because the fight's blacked out locally anyhow on the cable. I had this little portable in the bedroom, and I went in and I turned it on. Now, you never get Pittsburgh on that portable in that bedroom, never. But when I turned the TV on, there it was. Snowy, fuzzy, but there's the fight. Could hardly hear it, but there there it was. And they're just introducing Mancini for the fight. And I thought to myself, well, I wish this picture would clear him. I could hear it better. Boom. Crystal clear picture, crystal clear voice. It wasn't a very long fight. But boom, boom, one. And I'm all excited. And I'm sitting there, and the picture goes again. And they're about, they were just about to interview Mancini after the fight. I'm like, darn, I wish I could hear that. Boom. Back come the sound, back come the picture. I tried to explain to someone what had happened. They said, oh yeah, they always boost the power on those things. Yeah, like they're not going to boost the power for the commercials. Like they're not going to boost it before they start that fight. They're going to wait till the fight starts and boost it. They're going to lose that power and then boost it again when they interview Mancini. Give me a break. I came to me then I, and I started thinking about it and I know what happened. That's God's way of saying, Denny, pay attention. There are a lot of things you're getting for payoff in what you do. And I'll get your attention just through something like this. This isn't really necessary, but it's a bonus, Denny. Here's a payoff for what you've done. There are many of those things in life. The material things in life will always come to you. If you're applying the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous to all your affairs. There's a book by, uh, it's a series of leads that were transcribed under a book called A New Pair of Glasses by Chuck C. And he talks about there and how he applied the principles of this recovery program to his business and how it made him a millionaire. For those of you who are business-oriented, I highly, highly recommend that you get that book, A New Pair of Glasses by Chuck C. If you think that you can't run a business and apply these principles to your program, read that book. You will be amazed. When I when I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and like I said, I got into this power thing, and, and you know, Power like that, when you're when you're taking advantage of the new person, when you're abusing the new person, it's the same kind of power that you get from going to meetings. It's the same kind of power you get from a drink. 
You know, I used to get drunk and then I'd, and I'd, and I'd pass out or go to sleep. I never passed out. I just went to sleep. <laughs> and, you know, and then, and then, you know, when you wake up and you're sober, you gotta start again. And you, you're drinking and everything's fine and everything's feeling good. Then you get, you go to sleep and you wake up and you gotta start again. And I got sober. I went to a meeting and I felt good. And then when I left that meeting, that good feeling started to wear away. And the next thing I know, I need a meeting. And I go back to a meeting. And I feel good. And, and then it starts to wear off. And I need a drink. And I feel good. And then it starts to wear off. And I need a drink. And I feel good. And it starts to wear off. And I need a meeting. And they're interchangeable, aren't they? Well, certainly, you're never going to get a DUI or DWI for, for attending meetings. I want to share with you experience in my recovery in my life and how our alcoholism is, affects us and our family. When I was drinking, we have family reunions, family get-togethers, and I would overhear, don't bring that out. Not till he leaves. Don't bring no beer till he leaves. Well, you know he's going to be there. Don't bring no beer. Wait till he leaves, then get it out. And then I got sober. And I went to the family reunion. No, you can't have that out while he's here. You know he can't be around that stuff. <laughs> Put that back. Wait till he leaves. <laughs> Seven and a half years sober. I heard that. I want to tell you something happened about four or five years ago. My cousin, whose place we're having a family reunion at, called me on the phone. My family nickname is Butch. She says, Butch, would you come over to the house and put the ice on the beer keg? Can you get some ice? She knew I could. So I went and I got two barrels full of ice, two garbage cans full of ice, and I took them over and I iced down the pop and I iced down the beer and I made sure that the hose was good and ice because her husband comes home and want a cold beer that night. And you want to know something? I did not grow hair on my face as a result of that. I did not grow fangs and I did not get drunk. What I did was participate in a family event of our family reunion. I wasn't a problem for them. My drinking wasn't a problem for them. My not drinking wasn't a problem for them. My family no longer suffers from my alcoholism. I no longer suffer from my alcoholism. I have long since been recovered. And I hope that irritates some of you. Look it in the book. Look it up in the book. It says it over and over again. Recovered. Recovered. Recovered means getting back. I'm going to tell you something. I got more than I ever had. How could I just still be recovering if I got more than I had? I'm growing now. I reached the point of recovery. Now I'm growing. You put the 12 steps to work in your life very simply. Bill Wilson, and again, here's the guy to get mad at. He says a lot of this stuff. I mean, he does. I mean, he and he wrote this stuff down, and I think he did it just to piss people off. Either that or give me an opportunity to piss people off. One of the other. One of the things he did say is, I'm never going to drink again as long as I live. Now, he says that's a personal choice. You say that any way you choose. But he said, and in the book it tells us that. You know what the book says? Book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, I can't drink. It's impossible for me to drink. It says, 
If I were to drink, I would recoil from it. If it were to touch my lips, I would recoil from it like a hot flame. Provided I maintain my spiritual condition, which was granted to me, not something I earned, not something that I worked for, but was granted, given to me, as a result of my activity with the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Let me tell you how complicated this program is. Let me tell you how hard it is to work this program. I'm going to do that by defining my, outlining my program to you right here tonight. I'll start in the morning when I get up. I go out into the kitchen and I pour a cup of cold coffee because I never, once the coffee's made, I turn it off because it burns it. I put it in a cup and put the cup in the microwave and go in and get my daily reflections book and read it. And all that time I see how it's going to apply to me and, you know, and how it's applied to me in the past, how it applies to me now and how maybe some things I got to work to get this better in my life. Then I go get my coffee and I bring it back in the living room and I look at my day. What am I going to do today? Well, I'm retired. My days generally consist of as soon as I get through with this stuff, I'm going to turn on the television and if there's nothing on, I'll play Nintendo the rest of my day. <laughs> Every day I have a plan. But there is always some clown who thinks you're playing too much Nintendo. And they call you on the phone and they want you to do this or they want you to do that or they want to hear you I want to talk to you. So I always have this plan. It doesn't disturb me that I can't keep it sometimes, depending on what game I'm playing and where I'm at. But I have a plan for that day. As I go through, and then I do stupid things. Anybody will. I mean, anybody. Get them drunk like we drink. They'll do stupid stuff. They'll hurt the ones they love. But the insanity is, see, those people... Having done that, won't get drunk like that again. Well, that was your fault anyhow. <laughs> I'll get drunker. Yeah, oh, by the way, the new pill out. Did you hear about it? And in, the, in this insanity, I mean, they got a pill out for the, for the alcoholic now that says when you take it, the alcohol won't have as much effect on you. What are you going to do? Drink more. I don't understand how stupid these people can be to think they're helping the alcoholic. God. I mean, if you got three, two, you just got to drink twice as much, right? God. A little Valium helps too. <laughs> Where was that? <laughs> A recognition of the insanity of our of, of our compulsions to do these things that are stupid, that keep creating more problems for us than we already have. Our solutions are worse than our problems. And we've tried everything we can to fix it. We look and we get totally frustrated. We just can't seem to go on. Can't seem to go on. Come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sin. Do you know for some of you when you come to Alcoholics Anonymous, that's going to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous? Good luck. Good luck. I hope you find someone who has recovery and not someone who, like me, that wants to be God. But I'll tell you something else, too. I never, I never got anyone drunk. And I never got anyone sober. And if you want what we have and are willing to go ten lengths to get it, I don't care what it takes and who you have to go through around or over to get it, you're going to get it. Nobody or nothing can stop you. And if you've got a sponsor that's playing games with you, it's only a matter of time that you'll either drink or go get another sponsor. It doesn't matter because you're going to try again. You're going to make that effort time and time again, and you're going to keep it up until you get what we have. And I know that for a fact. No one 
can stop you if you want it, and no one can make it happen if you don't. Miss Carr, great on yourself, and, and then, and it, you know, it's simple, it's a simple matter. If this podium weighs 500 pounds and I want to put it down on the floor, it's stupid for me to try to do it by myself, but I would. An intelligent person would say, or not intelligent, it has nothing to do with intelligence. A normal person would say, hey, look at this room full of people. Certainly amongst you there are some who don't have bad backs who are strong enough to help me get this podium to the floor without dropping it, aren't there? Can I have some help from people who might be able to help me without hurting themselves move this podium? And some of you would raise your hand and we'd move the podium. Doesn't make sense if you have something that you can't handle to get help in doing it from people who say they can help you. That's what the second step's about. You come to recognize that help's available. You come to recognize that another path is a better one to follow than the one you've been on. The simple decision is okay. I think it makes sense. And the third step is a decision. It's not an action. It's a decision. How long does it take to make a decision? You know, it may take a lifetime to come to the conclusion that you're un a powerless over alcohol and your life is unmanageable. I don't know how long it's going to take you. But when that happens, until you recognize that there's another source, you're suicidal. You're totally depressed. When you recognize that source of help, it follows to make a decision to do it. But to go ahead and do it is an impossible task at that point because you don't know what it is that you're going to do. And the book tells us, after this third step, it says our decision, that's all it is, a decision. Our decision, although a vital wood, could be of little permanent effect unless at once, followed by a course of action designed to remove the things that blocked us. Now, you want to piss an old-timer off who claims to be an old-timer who doesn't know what he's talking about, tell him that. That as soon as you take your third step, you do your fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth, and eleventh, and twelfth. And then if he says no, take him to the big book. And I don't know what page it's on, but I know that it starts at the bottom right after, right after you do that, uh, uh, that explains all about the third step and the third step prayer. It starts at the bottom of that page and finishes at the top of the next. And it tells you precisely that. Our decision, although a vital one, could be a little permanent effect unless at once, followed by a course of action, beginning with an inventory. So the fourth step is there. Now, how good of a fourth step can somebody who is newly sober take? If this is your first day sober, you can take an inventory that's as good as mine, 21 years sober. Not quite 21. I'll be 21 in March, March uh, 19th. But yours is as good as mine. Won't be as in-depth. Won't be as precise. Maybe not as long. But it will be at least as heavy and probably heavier than any inventory I'm ever going to take again. See, and it tells you in the book precisely how to do this thing. I thought, oh, you've got to write your life history. It'll take me forever. Oh, there's so many things I've got to write. I couldn't do that. Series of lists, beginning with resentments, and it tells you how to write your resentments. Resented Mr. Smith because of his attention to him. My threatened me in my social life, threatened me in my sexual affairs, and so forth. My security, fear. Tells you precisely how to write it out. And then, as soon as you get all your resentments, not fears, resentments, all young resentments, all your resentments out there, who I resent, why I resent them, and how it affected me, put it on paper, immediately tells you how to deal with resentment. See, and I was afraid to write all these things down because I know if I bring all these things to my conscious mind about my resentments, it'll overwhelm me. I can't do that. Read the book, dummy. As soon as you write them down, it tells you how to deal with them. Become apparent that the people and things in this world have the power to hurt us. It's true. It's a fact. Some of you here are hurt. Really hurt. 
That's not a joke, and it's not something to laugh at. We are hurt. And there will, people and things in this world will always have the power to hurt us. It says in the book, and these are my words, and not a quote out of the book, because I like my words better than the book. Anyone who would knowingly hurt another human being must be spiritually sick. And it tells us in the book that we treat these people. It says that in so many words in the book. And it tells us in the people that we treat these people who have harmed us as though we would a sick friend. How can we be helpful? Pray that they would have in their life what we want for ourselves. If we hang on to this grudge, if we hang on to this as resentment, if we're trying to point the finger at them to tell them what they did wrong, we never have a chance to be helpful. And the purpose of this program is to be of maximum help, maximum service to God and His children. And so when you take these resentments and you begin to deal with them immediately, what a burden. Before you get done with your inventory, what a relief, what a burden starts to leave. And then it says, go back through your list of resentments. That's your second list. Look at your part in them. No matter how far off base they were, setting aside the faults and wrongs of others, we resolutely took a look at ourselves. This is an introduction to the true and real power we have in our lives. The power and ability to control what we do. The power and ability to control what we do. Not what we think, not what we feel. What we do. And then it says, take a look at this. It is our inventory. Personal inventory. The introduction to a concept that totally blew my mind. When I'm thinking about people who resent me, you know what it is? It's anger and it's just I want to get even and I want to hurt them because they hurt me. They're terrible, rotten, no good, dirty, lousy people. And it turns around and says, okay, forget about that. What about you? Me? Well, they deserved what I did. And then it cautions us and tells us how often we always set ourselves up for what happened to us. And how often even when something bad happened to us without our involvement, we made it worse. And how often when we knew we were going to get hurt, we went back anyhow. The inventory was ours. You know, interestingly enough, it doesn't tell you to do anything with that. And then it says fears, real or imagined. And then it tells us they're going to deal with our fears right away. As soon as you get listed down, and it was in, there's a neat guy, he tells the story. This guy said, well, I haven't, I'm not afraid of anything. Great, big, strong, I'm not afraid of anything. Uh, afraid of alligators? Well, yeah. Uh, rhinoceros? Well, yeah. Lions? Well, yeah. Your wife when you've been out too late? Well, yeah. <laughs> a police car pulls up behind you? Well, yeah. Losing your job? Yeah. Oh, is there anything you're not afraid of? And that cautions us. It tells us why we have fears and how we're going to get rid of them. Every fear you and I have is based in self-reliance. Look at this. What? I can't say. Liz, if I can beat you up, you don't scare me. But if I think she can beat me up, I'm scared. I am not intimidated nor afraid of anything I think I can handle. If I could catch bullets with my teeth, you couldn't intimidate me with a gun. I am afraid of guns. I am not a pet detective. We are afraid of those things we believe we can't handle. And it tells us. Remember the decision we made in the third step? 
The more reliant we become upon this higher power, the less reliant we are upon ourselves, and thus the less fear we're going to have. And it's a fact, and it works. So your fears begin to go away. And then the last one, the biggie. Sex in the dark. It does not tell us in the sex inventory to write a detailed description of everything we've ever done and everyone we've ever done it with. I, you know what's interesting about this inventory? Without fail, every guy I've ever sponsored gets to this point, he says, oh, this is going to take a while. <laughs> and invariably, they come out with a very short list. It is a it is a list of times and situations where we have abused this God-given gift. Where we have we misused this gift? Where have we been selfish, self-centered, self-thinking, self-seeking? Where have we unjustifiably caused resentment, jealousy? That's what it is. It's an inventory based on motives, not behaviors. Behaviors are up to you, and it cautions you in the book to be very careful about coming to how you want to, how you want to live your life in that area of your life. Do not seek advice from just anybody because opinions vary and are so wide. And it's a personal decision between you and God as you understand them. Having made that decision, attempt to live up to it. If you fail to live up to it, it doesn't mean you're going to get drunk. It means that if you fail to live up to it, either you've set standards that are too high and unrealistic, or you need to reassert yourself towards your goal and be honest with yourself. And I'll assure you that what you're honest about today will look like a lie tomorrow. It isn't. Honesty for us is a relative term. God will never put on us what we cannot handle. God will do for us what we cannot handle. And so God says to us when we come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I understand that if I were to make you aware of everything you've ever done that was unacceptable, it would overwhelm you and you would want to die. I will give you enough today to deal with. And if you deal with that, I'll give you some tomorrow. And in fact, if you don't deal with that, I'm still going to give you some tomorrow. <laughs> How often in Alcoholics Anonymous is I'm overwhelmed, I can't handle this. You don't know why? Very precisely why. God gives us a little bit each day. And on Monday, he gives me something to do to fix myself, to make my life better. And I say, well, I don't want to deal with that now. I'll do it tomorrow. And then Tuesday, you get a phone call, you get busy, and Nintendo's on. And you say, well, Wednesday. Wednesday's home group, you can't do that, so... And then comes Thursday, and you're planning for the weekend, and the weekend starts, and here it is Sunday. And you sit down, and you start looking at this week, and you say, my God, all this stuff i got to do, I can't handle it. Of course you're overwhelmed. You've got a, work, a week's worth of work, and you want to do it in 15 minutes. It's overwhelming. It's just like the dishes. You dirty a dish, I'll do it later. Set it in the sink. Leave it on the table. And the next thing you know, look around and everything you have to eat off of or from is dirty. And you think about the idea of doing dishes and you're overwhelmed. God, I can't do all that. It'll take forever to get this done. Overwhelmed. One of the keys to recover is don't let things build up. Do it as you go. Continued. Continued personal inventory. And when wrong, promptly admit it. Continue to do dishes as you dirty them and they won't build up on you. Trust me, I know about dishes. And, and the, uh, that's the end of the inventory and that's too simple, isn't it? That's just too simple. That's just how simple this program is. 
Fifth step, you must share absolutely everything with someone. It says that three times at least in that chapter. You cannot hold anything back. You must illuminate every dark corner of your past. Some of the stuff will be on your inventory. Some of the stuff will not. Some of the things out of your past will not be on that inventory. Share them in the fifth step. Absolutely everything. Someone must know you. It's an act of humility. You know, a real good definition for humility is honesty. Honesty. In all humility, I'm a good speaker. And for me to stand before you and say, no, I'm not. It's a lie. And it's not humility. Now, it's not humility when I brag about it. But it is humility to acknowledge it. It is humility when I acknowledge every defect in my character. It's humility when I acknowledge every mistake of my past. It's humility when I acknowledge everything that eats at me that I don't want you to know. It's essential to recovery. Find someone you can trust and get humble. Six, and then you've got to, no, you get first break. It's only break in AA. One hour. <laughs> well, look, look at how long we've taken here. Those simple, the first of the, you know, that first step may take a long time. But when you get to that, the second step, higher power, third step decision, fourth step, that inventory series of lists, we're talking a matter of less than hours. And we're fifth step. Fifth step, and I'll tell you what a psychiatrist told me, anybody who can sit and talk about themselves for more than an hour is crazy. You talk about a lot of other people, and that's what we tend to do when we do our fifth step. We, we digress, we get off and we talk about this one, we talk about that one. But just simply about yourself and what's going on with you and how you feel and where your life is at. You ain't going to talk that long. Six, you take that hour break, and what you do during the hour break is you look back through those first five steps and you ask yourself a question. Am I playing a game here? Did I knowingly leave anything out? Am I hiding something? At the end of the hour, if the answer is no, go ahead. If the answer is yes, go share that. Six says, look, you made a decision in three. You found out what you have to do to carry that decision out through four and five. You found out the things you have to change about your behavior to get more in tune with God's will. Are you still willing to do it? If the answer is yes, you've done six, go ahead and do it. That's seven, and it's only a beginning, and you can't end it. Six and seven take, seven take less time to do than they take to read, and they're only that much in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So we're at step eight, and the list is in your inventory. If it ain't there, write a list of people you've harmed. Don't be worried about You know how you're done with the list when the fourth step or your, your, your eighth step? You know how you're done with the list? You sit more than five minutes and you can't think of anything to write, you're done. And I'll guarantee you tomorrow you'll think of something else to write. And so you will the rest of your life. Now, if you want to wait till you get it right, then wait. And when you finally get two weeks in a row where you can't think of anything new to write on your paper, go ahead and take your inventory. It's probably about two weeks after you're dead. Write that list and become willing to make amends to these people. And in ninth step, make direct amends wherever possible to injure, except when to do so would injure them or others. I caution you, before you start to make amends, go to the people who have made amends. Listen to them. Our solutions are worse than our problems. We create more pain in attempting our idea of what amends are than we did with the initial incident. Be very careful with amends. Don't let that stop you, but be very careful with it. 10, 11, and 12. Do what you've done and carry that message. 10 and 11 are nothing more than a, continu a continuation of what you've already done. 
continue to take personal inventory. That's not, don't sit down at night and say, hey, uh, what was today like? Continue as you go through day. Watch your behavior. Stay in touch with what you do. And when you're wrong, promptly admit it. And I'll share you when you first start this, promptly is about six months later. Unless you want to impress someone in AA. Oh, I'm sorry. I talked about you last night. That's not amends. You know what amends are when you're gossiping? Go back to the people you gossip to and tell them you were wrong or you had no business saying that. That's amends. And then go back to the person you were talking about and say, look, I had talked about you behind your back and this is who I talked to and I went back to them and I told them that I had no right to say that about you behind your back. And I want to let you know that I did that and that I went and corrected that. That's amends. Correcting your mistakes, not acknowledge them. Correct them. And, and uh, it's 11, stop through prayer and meditation, and I love this one. Uh, uh, stop through prayer and meditation to prove our conscious contact with God as I understand and praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. There are those who say prayers when you talk to God, meditations when you listen to Him, and that's a form of meditation, yes. For those of you who, who have ever lifted weights, you know what different weights are, how you lift differently to exercise different muscles. And for every way you can exercise muscles, there are, there's a meditation for an exercise of the mind. Prayer is a good meditation. It's a positive influence in the mind. And we've had enough negative influence in our life. Counting the times you breathe slows it down, makes it pay attention. It's good meditation for the mind. Journeys are good ways to expose things of your past. Relaxation meditation. You ever hear one about the oil can? Start with this guy that has this bright brass oil can, and he starts with your right big toe, and he squirts a little squirt of oil on that big toe, and you move it a little, and it relaxes. You go through every joint in your body and oil it. Neat. Neat experience. It's a meditation. Many, many forms of meditation. You know, and when I was going to start meditating, I wanted to do it right. So I went and bought a book. It says, How to Meditate. And you start off in this book, and before you know it, in chapter two or three, it's talking about out-of-body experience of nirvana, and, and they're, they're using they're using 342-letter names from India, you know, blah, blah. and in the back of the book, there's a chapter on simple meditations. Count every time you inhale, count one. Do that four times, and then start again, and do that four times. In other words, count four breaths four times, 16 breaths. Took me six months. I go. One, two, two, three. Shit. One. Twenty-seven. I could not focus. Could not keep my mind clear enough to count six, long enough to count 16 breaths about wandering off somewhere. It's a good discipline of the mind. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, verse 11, tried to carry this message to alcoholic, you still suffered in the practice of these principles in all our affairs. Now, how do you know if you had a spiritual awakening? You've done the steps. By the book, you've had one. You may not know it, but it's there. Trust me. How do you know when you're getting this thing right? How do you know when you're doing it wrong? How do you know if you got a good program? 
How do you know if you got a bad program? I don't know. I don't know anybody that's ever got it right. I don't know anybody that's ever got it wrong. I don't know anybody with a good program, and I don't know anybody with a bad program. I know people who have programs, and I know people who don't, and that is the end of that. I started to tell you about my program, how I get up in the morning, you know, and, and I do that thing, and I go through the day, and I have this program, this plan. I talk with people. Almost every day I talk with someone in, who's in recovery or who's recovered. I spend time with alcoholics who are recovered. Every Wednesday I go to my home group. One meeting a week. I did not get sober to hide out in Alcoholics Anonymous. If that's a social thing for you, that's fine. But don't kid yourself. You're never going to recover by going to seven meetings a week or 24. It's never going to happen. You get sober by working the steps. And if it's okay for you to spend the rest of your life in AA meetings every night, it's okay with me. I don't know many people, young people. I was 30 years old and thought it was kind of dumb. When I worked with a teenager, somebody that's in their early 20s, and I said, does it make sense to you at your age to be in an AA meeting every night? I've never had one of them tell me yes. And it doesn't make sense to me. Get recovery. Get the program. Get those 12 steps to work in your life. And then get a life. Commit yourself to a home group. Commit yourself to a sponsor. Commit yourself to your program and commit yourself to fellowship and then commit yourself to life. Be a part of your family again. Go to their reunions. Go to their wedding receptions and don't question whether or not they're going to be drinking. Go to your friends' parties. Question whether or not they're going to be smoking. <laughs> That's the only one, fellas. I, I wanted to smoke. <laughs> But I know for me, you know, when I'm smoking pot, I want a little bit of wine. And a little bit of wine comes in the bottom of a five-gallon jug. <laughs> Let's not kid ourselves. Two of my, my greatest fantasies in life is to do some acid and watch Alice in Wonderland or Fantasia. I've got both tapes. So I have to fake it. You go someplace, make sure they're not going to smoke, because you know what a contact, you know what they mean by contact high? That's a thing that contacts inside, so let's get high! <laughs> you got to avoid that. If you are around alcohol, or any other drug, and you are uncomfortable, listen to what it says about you. There's something wrong with your spiritual condition, and as such, you are not safe, get out! Go, leave. But if you are comfortable, by all means, stay. Until those drunks get so irritating you can't take them anymore. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says if you have a program, part of which is avoidance of alcohol, even if you go to Greenland, it would fail. Some Eskimo would show up with a bottle of scotch and ruin the whole thing. Somebody, well-meaning friend, someone who cares about you, who doesn't understand, will offer you a drink. Someone unknowingly will pour some in the mix somewhere, some along the line, and hand it to you. You can't avoid it. And if you're not spiritually fit, and you're in a room full of friends, and they're all partying, and they hand you a drink, how do you say no? You don't, unless you're spiritually fit. 
You take the drink, you taste it. If it gets to your nose, you'll smell it and say, hey, what's this got in it? Nothing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you won't drink it. Guaranteed by that big book. If your spiritual condition is intact, you cannot drink. You will not drink. Ever again. Maintain the spiritual condition. Continued personal inventory. When wrong, promptly admitted it. I have those commitments in my life. I work with new people. When all else fails, I don't care how many walls... And you know, I'll tell you something about Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson had a flash of light, remember? For those of you who know about our co-founder, he had this flash of light while he was in the hospital and everything was different for him. Then he spent the next three months of his life struggling to stay sober. He knew. And is there one in this room that doesn't know? No, we know. He knew what alcohol would do, but he had this craving, this urge. And every time he went to work with a new man, poof, there it went. No matter what your condition is, no matter what your state of mind is, work with a new man. Work with someone who needs help. My definition of a new man is anyone who has not yet put the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous to their life, and I don't care how long you've been sober. I was seven and a half years sober, new to Alcoholics Anonymous, when I began to put this thing to work in my life. It was after that that my family invited me to be a part of the family. My parents aren't too well. My mother especially. She's, they call her bionic woman. She's had a heart attack, major heart attack. She's had uh, cancer, colon cancer. She's diabetic. And and we all know it keeps her going, but... Uh, she has a real positive attitude. But after the cancer surgery, her and my mom and dad and my brother sat down in the kitchen of my parents' home. And they were talking about a living will. Now, a living will is a piece of paper that says that someone has the authority to pull the plug. Someone has the authority to stop life-saving techniques. My brother's a year older than I am. My brother's not an alcoholic. My brother doesn't have problems with life. My parents asked me to put my name on the living will for several reasons. First of all, that I'm acceptable to them as a result of the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Go back. Go back to where I was seven years sober. There's no way. Go back to when I was ten years sober. No way in hell would they trust me. Too many years, too many years behind a bad experience. The motive for me as opposed to my brother is that he has children that very much love my grandmother. How would his children feel if they knew he was the one that said it was okay to pull their plug on their grandmother? Don't put that on my brother. I can deal with that. You know how I can deal with that? Because I have a higher power for guidance. There's no fear in my mind about that. There's no question, no doubt, that when the time comes, the decision I make, if that has to be made, will be an appropriate one. You get that kind of confidence. Cocky, you're damn right I am. And if you're not, then I suggest you take a look at your program. It tells you in the big book, those of us who truly believe will appear cocky to those who don't. Very confident about this thing. There is absolutely no question or doubt in my mind. 
that this thing works. There's a very precise outline of it in that book. You don't have to understand it the way I do. As long as you're reading the same book I am, I'll tell you what. It, my, what the way I see this thing today is nothing like I saw it ten years ago. And I hope to God that the way I see it today won't be the way I see it ten years from now. I don't want to stay the way I am. I want to grow. If you don't want to grow, what are you doing? What are you doing here? My life today is better without alcohol. But my life today would be just as miserable for me if it weren't for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wouldn't have the hangovers. I wouldn't have the DUIs, the face, and all that kind of stuff. But I'd still have the fear, the remorse, the regrets, the resentments, the shame, the guilt, if it weren't for a 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We are not a glum bunch. We absolutely insist on having fun. It says so in the big book. I believe it. <laughs> I hope this evening that we shared some laughter. I want to leave you with something that... I, there's a lot of things I like to do at the end. I want to tell you this one first. Maybe I'll do another one. How much time we got? We got time? Okay. I'm about five years sober. Mr. Guru, Mr. AA. Okay? And I still got my beard and my hair. Long hair again because I sold the convertible. And I got this van. See, I, I run all over town filling this van up with people so I can take them to a meeting. Not because I'm working a 12-step. Remember, I ain't there yet, five years sober. Because when I go into a meeting, I want all these people following behind me. So we can all sit at our table and we can have a bigger click than they have over there. And see, I didn't think this one up neither. I found that in place when I got here. Remember the E.F. Hutton commercial years ago? Well, my, my broker's E.F. Hutton, and E.F. Hutton says, and they all go like this. We'd go into a meeting, and we would sit down, and at the appropriate time prior to the meeting start, when it got quiet, one of my pigeons would say, well, my sponsor's Denny Lawrence, and Denny Lawrence says, and they'd all go, and you could just watch across the room. <laughs> I loved it. Christmas time. Here I am, Guru AA, you know. Now all these people I'm sponsoring, who do you buy for? What do you buy? I hate that. Can't stand it. Stomping around them all, and I hate people, and I hate balls, and I hate Christmas. And in the Sears store, right at the entrance, they have set up this table and this computer. And they're taking a TV picture of you and putting your image on a T-shirt. Now... I want to let you know that five years sober, these teeth were missing. And I smiled with the beard and the hair and those teeth missing. I made Charlie Manson look like an angel. And I'm like this. And I have this image put on a t-shirt right underneath that I have my hero put. Seventeen of them I bought. That's all the money I had. So then I can't decide who to give them to and who not, so I wrapped them all up and didn't put names on them. And I just handed them out as I came across people. If you ever get a chance to lead in the Warren Youngstown area and you want to piss them off, tell them you got a Denny Lawrence t-shirt. 
Yeah, there's this one moment that absolutely has a fit every time that's mentioned. That's 16 years ago. You talk about a sense of power. I personally think that's one of the funniest things I've ever done in my life. But I still have the power to piss her off. I don't take me that serious. I don't know why she does. And don't you. Don't you. But the bookstore tonight, I want to do another one. Went to the bookstore tonight for Well, I'll get you out of here in time for the dance. Went to the bookstore tonight, and and I come across, I, I, I always look when I go to see if there's a new book by Leo Biscaglia. And there was. And I bought it. And I also bought the last copy they had there of Love. If you've never heard of the book Love, or never heard of Leo Biscaglia, check it out. I don't know what it'll do for you, but it did a lot for me. And in this book, he talks about people wanting to be something other than what they are. Like if I were thinner or taller, I'd have to weigh less if I was taller. If I had less gray hair, if I was younger, maybe if I were better looking, maybe somehow if I were different, life would be easier for me. And we all think like that, he says. We all says we all think like that. And I'm wow, I thought it was just me. He says it's kind of like being a plump. You know, if you're a plum and you're sitting in the orchard, all these fruit trees around, you're looking around and you, you, you see the, like the, the banana tree and the, and, the, and the orange tree and the apple tree, every, they get a lot more attention. Not many people like plums, but look at all the people that like, say, bananas. And you think to yourself, boy, if I could just be a banana, it'd be easier to get someone to like me. And if you look around long enough, you'll find a bunch that'll let you hang out with them. But then because you're a plum and you don't know what it is to be a banana, you gotta watch what a banana does and imitate them so then you, do what a banana does. And, and you know, sure enough, you hang out and you act like a banana. Pretty soon somebody's going to come along and they'll look at you and say, hey, I like strange, weird bananas. And you've got the strangest, weirdest banana I ever think. I think I love you. And there it is. That's what we've been after all our lives. Someone to love us. Someone to care about us. And here we go through life acting like a banana. And then one day, just for a minute, we forget. And we do a plum thing. And then this person who all along has loved this purple little banana looks at us and says, hey, what did you just do? You just did a plum thing. You can't be a banana because bananas don't do plum things. And he walks out on you. The story of my life. I'll be anything you want me to be if you'll just love me. And then you find out I'm a phony and you walk out on me. And say, so I always interpreted that as no one loves me. I'm unlovable. I never gave anyone a chance. I never let anyone know me. How could they love me? I wouldn't be me. Leo says, you know, maybe being a plum is a little bit more difficult. But if you work at being a good plum, I mean the best plum you can be, when a plum lover finally comes along, guess who he's going for? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm out picking apples, I want that skinny, scrawny, old wormy thing on the bottom. I want that great, big, fat, juicy one. And that's what people are like. And if you just be who you are, and when someone does come along that likes that, oh, they're really going to like you then, because you're going to be the best damn plum you can be. And you know the neatest part about that? When I got sober, and I'm a phony for seven and a half years now, Alcoholics Anonymous, if you walk up to me with a smile on your face, say, hi, Denny, how you doing? And I can't remember where I met you, 
or who you are? Panic inside. All the smile. Hey, how you doing? Where'd I meet him? What'd I say? Who was I? How did I behave? How'd I get him to like me? And you know what happens now? I come to Cincinnati and somebody walks on and say, how you doing? And I don't know who they are or where I met them. I smile and say, hey, how you doing? Because I don't want them to think I forgot them. <laughs> but no panic inside, no fear inside, no guilt inside. I'm me. Here I am. And if you like me tonight, you're going to like me better tomorrow. Because I am in the process of becoming the best Denny I can be. God's design for me. It's perfect. The closer I get to it, the more people have an opportunity to love the real me. That's what happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came here and I was a phony, but you people love me anyway because you understand and you know that when we come here, we're going to be phony. We're going to lie. We're going to do things that are not acceptable to us. We're going to struggle for a while. But in time, we're going to find out that God's design for us is a design that works. Each and every one of us is a unique creation of our higher power. Our goal is to become that, or the best we can at that. And through the 12-step process, that's simply what happens. We become what God intended us to be. Nothing we're ashamed of, nothing we're afraid of, nothing unacceptable to us, nothing we don't like. Everything that makes us happy. Everything that makes us fulfilled. Everything that makes us feel okay about ourselves. Everything that makes this life easier for us. That's what we become. My name's Denny Lawrence. And I'm a personality. And so are you. And we tell you in Alcoholics Anonymous to separate principle from personality. And there's only one way you can separate what this personality said tonight from the, the, uh, from the principles. And tell which is which. And that's to go to the source, and that's that book right there. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Check me out. This is not the only place I'm going to carry this message. It's not the last time I'm going to do this. I don't care how you feel about me. It's not that important to me. I'll have someone to love me because I'm okay. But if you care about Alcoholics Anonymous, if you care at all about Alcoholics Anonymous, don't you take what I've shared this evening and pass it on to another human being don't you take what I've shared this evening and put it to work in your life until you check me out. If you find what I've said agrees with what's in that book, have at it. Share it all you want. If you find what I've said disagrees with what's in that book, then confront me. If you care about Alcoholics Anonymous. And if I can't deal with your confrontation, then I have no business up here running my mouth. Thank you very much.